With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Oh yeah, stand up and shout. Welcome to Band Radio Show, coming to you each Monday and Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Black Brooks Rock. We are more than just a niche. We are a movement, says Ella Curry of EDC Creations. Prepare for the most stimulating conversation on the planet. Sit back, relax, enjoy another mind-blowing literary experience. Give the gift of knowledge. Put your hands together for your host, Ella D. Curry. Tonight we have another Crown Holders Conversation. And tonight we have with us the legendary Victoria Christopher Murray. Victoria is a longtime friend of the show, and she has been up to some really amazing things in the last couple of years. Victoria Christopher Murray is the New York Times bestselling author of more than 30 novels. Her novels, The Personal Librarian and The First Lady, which she co-authored with Marie Bennett, Benedict, are both instant New York Times bestsellers, and her novel, Stand Your Ground, won a NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Literary Works in Fiction. Four of Victoria's other novels, Lust, Envy, Rap, and Greed, have been made into TV movies for Lifetime. So join me in welcoming Victoria Christopher Murray to the show. Hello, Victoria. Hi, Ella. How are you? I am doing great. It's so good to have you back with us. I know. It's been a little while, right? Yes, so much has happened from the Lifetime movies, which I've seen all of, until the last maybe three novels since you've been back. And it's like things are uh, are really looking up for Victoria Christopher Murray. I saw you on Good Morning America. It's just a lot. So take us back, Victoria, and tell us some of the highlights of the last three years things have really blown up. I know, I know. I tell, I always like to tell people I became an overnight success after 20 years. Um, <laughs> so it, it was a 20-year journey to this. But I, as, as I just said, I've been writing for 20 years, and um, I guess it was back in 2018. Um, an author contacted me, Marie Benedict, through our agents, and she had been writing historical fiction um, for her career, 
and she came across a character which she felt that if she could try to write it, but this was a, a woman by the name of Belle Costa Green who had passed for white. And she was such, a, and this is a real-life story, because Marie was writing historical fiction on real people, but just fictionalizing their lives. And this character, Belle de Costa Green, it wasn't just that she passed for white. It was that she passed for white while being the personal librarian to J.P. Morgan. And so she had fooled. J.P. Morgan went to his grave not knowing that it was a black woman who helped him build his collection. And so when Marie brought this opportunity to me, it was so different than anything I'd ever written, Ella. You know that. I'd never written historical fiction. But it was such an interesting story that I said, okay, I really, really want to try to do this. And so we wrote that book together, and a couple of things happened. First of all, I love that I, I found out that I loved historical fiction. That's like my favorite genre now, to read and to write. I discovered that I absolutely loved writing with Marie um, because it's, it's really different when you're writing with someone from a different race and the kinds of um, conversations you have to have and your writing experience. Everything is so different um, so that you really get a chance to learn some things new. And then that's when everything started happening with Good Morning America. As you said, we were a Good Morning America book club pick. So we got to be on there three times, which was really great. Uh, and then it just blew up from there. Oh, wow. Well, let's let's start with the Lifetime movies because this, okay. is it this week they're playing all week, right? Is it They're playing all yes. week, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, so let's start with the Lifetime movies. I'm sure no one has missed them, but just in case I have new people to the show, tell us about the the Lifetime movies and how you got that started. Well, that was a very interesting thing. I um, I was writing the Seven, Devin, Seven Deadly Sins series. But, well, well, let me even back up from there. You even mentioned um, Sandra Ground. And after I wrote that novel, which won every award I could win, including the Library Journal Best Book of the Year um, and also the NAACP Image Award, I had a hard time writing after that, Ella. I Mm -hmm. could not write because... Um, it was the first time that I didn't have a book the very next year. And that was because that book, Stand Your Ground, I felt not only did so well in sales, but it was so well written that I felt like I wouldn't be able to do it again. And Mm -hmm. I was, I had never in my life had a writer's block, never in my life until that point. And so my agent said to me, you really need to write something totally different so that you won't feel like you're being compared to Stand Your Ground. 
So I did have something different. I'm going to bring up a name from a long time ago. It was back in like 2013 that Vicky Stringer, who who owns, yes, who had Triple Crown, well, she and I were friends. And she called me one day and she said, Victoria, I really want us to do a project together. She wrote street fiction. I was known for writing Christian fiction. And she thought that we could do a great project together um, and, and get people really interested because people say, how do these two genres work together? And so she came up with The Seven Deadly Sins. So she and I started writing the book Lust, and about 10% of the way through, I mean, we had not gotten very far, when Vicki said that she was going to take a break from writing. And I said, okay. And she said, but you know what, Victoria, I think you should go on and write The Seven Deadly Sins. Well, when she had said that to me back in like 2013, I wasn't interested. I hadn't thought about it. This was her idea. You know, so, and she kept saying, you need to do it, go and do it. You know, I'll speak to you later. She was getting out of writing and getting out of publishing. So um, I didn't do anything with it for like five years. And then after Stand Your Ground, when my agent said, you need to do something different, that's when I decided to write what? To go ahead and write the whole book. So that's where the idea of The Seven Deadly Sins came from. It came from me working with Vicki Stringer. And then um, I had not even yet had the book published. It was out with the galleys and everything. And my publisher sent was to Essence Magazine, and Patrick Bass was there at the time. And Patrick Bass was the book editor at Essence, and he read it, and he called up Sean Robinson, who used to be the host of Access Hollywood. And he said to Sean, you've told me that you want to get into movies. If you want to get into movies, I have the movie for you. Um, and he said I, he had been following Victoria for 20 years, and he said, I just read her latest book. It's the mer- most commercial book yet. And he said, do you know her? And we happened to, like, know people in common. We had met. And she got in touch with me, and she said, I want to go out and sell this. I want to sell the seven deadly sins. Are you going to be doing the seven deadly sins? And I was thinking, "Um, I'm not sure. I want to write Lust and just see what happens with Lust. And she said, well, she said, I can't sell it unless I have at least one more book from you. So Sean and I came up with the second book idea, Envy, and then to shorten this story, she just went out and and teamed up with TDJ, and they got the deal with Lifetime. And Ella, what was so great about that deal with Lifetime is that I had only written two books, and they still did a seven-movie deal. They still did a seven-movie deal. And the thing that was so, that's, if anybody's listening who wants to be a writer, I think the reason that happened was because I had already established the reputation that I was going to deliver. So even without the other book, 
they knew that I would write the next one. And I did. Wow. And went on to write Lust, Envy, Wrath, and Greed that became part of that series that they can watch all of them this week on Lifetime. Yep, and Pride. And Pride. I won't won't be doing um, Sloth and Gluttony because we all agree that those, those may not be good story ideas. You know, there's Lust is a great one. Wrath is a great one. Uh, but we won't be doing gluttony and sloth. We thought we were, uh, but I just can't even think of really good book ideas for them. Okay. So were you on set, and did you have any input into the actors or the, uh, you know, how they, because I know the first one didn't read long like the book. So did you have anything to do with the scripts or any of that? Yeah, no, no, I don't. But I thought the first one was really like the book. I thought, I thought all four. I was amazed at how well they went along with the book because the one thing about a movie is that the script is only ninety pages and the book is three hundred pages. Mm-hmm. So they have to cut out two thirds of the book because. The script can only be 90 pages because it's a page a minute. So it's so hard for them to take a book and to cut out two-thirds and still make it look like the book. And I mm-hmm. thought they did a fabulous job with that. With all, They didn't do that with, with Pride, but with the first four, I thought they did an amazing job. And that's why they they don't ask the authors to participate in that part. I know a lot of people say things like, um, if this was my book, they better do this a certain way and they better mm-hmm. do this. Life, Lifetime never told me how to write the book, and I never told them how to do the movies. Those are two different things, two different expertise. Like, I would have never cast some of the people. I would have never thought of them. Like Eric Benet, who did an amazing job in Greed, or Tank, who was in. I would have never cast some of these people. And when they're doing the casting, they're thinking of things that are way beyond things that we are thinking about in terms of the story. They're they're looking at cast members for not only how they will look on the screen, but their interaction with the other cast members um, because there has to be chemistry between the actors that you want in there. And a lot of times we won't know that because we're not expertise. We're not, you know, we're not experts on that. That's not our expertise. Um, and so that's the biggest thing I learned, and I think that there are a lot of people who pass up good opportunities or they won't get in good opportunity because they don't understand that they should stick as novelists to what they know and let the movie people do what they know. But I was on now, the set. I was think- on the set. I'm sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, no, no. I was just going to say you said a lot of things that I didn't know, but you were on the set. I was on the set, so that was fun. Now, for the first two movies, it was during COVID, so I was not on the set. They filmed those two in Atlanta, and then Greed and, um, what was it, Greed, Wrath, and Pride were all filmed in Vancouver, and I was there on those sets. Okay. Now, I didn't know that it was um, about the page count, and it was, what did you say, 90 pages? That, wow. I didn't know any of that. that. Yeah, so think about that, Ella. Think about the books are 300 pages, and it can only be 90 pages because it's a page a minute. So they make make a two-hour movie, 90 minutes, and they're thinking, okay, 90 pages because there's going to be some changes. It's going to increase a little bit here. We have to put in a commercial. So they have to cut out two-thirds of the book. And this is why most of the time they don't want to work with authors on it. Because if they sat down with me and said to me, okay, which parts are not important? Which parts of your book can we cut out? I would say you can't cut out anything. If it wasn't important, I wouldn't have put it in there. So they know which parts they can cut out because they know how fast the story has to be paced for the screen. A a novelist doesn't know that. And I hear people all the time with their books saying, well, if they do this, if they're going to make my movie, if they're going to turn my book into a movie, then it better be this way and it better be that way. And I feel so bad because I want to tell them that nobody's ever going to work with you on your book because you're not going to let them, you're not allowing them to do their expertise, and then they won't tell you how to write your book. I would be upset if Lifetime came to me and said, I want you to write your book this way. They don't know anything about novels. They don't know anything about my market. And the same thing goes for me. I don't know anything about movies. I don't know anything about their market. And as a reader, I think, like I said, this didn't go along with the book. It's because I'm thinking the whole 300. I want all that fluff and all of that stuff, but it can't be all of that. I hadn't really thought about that. 90 pages? Wow. Yeah. But all of I know, them that I watched out. are great. Yeah, see, because if you think about that now, if you went back and you looked at them knowing that they were only 90 pages of the book, I think they took out the most important pages. Like, they got those 90 really important pages. Another thing they can't do, like, in Lust, I had them um, on their honeymoon in Dubai. They can't do that. They can't go over to Dubai and do it. And especially during, during COVID, they couldn't even go down to beaches and pretend they were in Dubai. You know, um, so they're, uh-huh. they're also very limited by the budget. They're also very limited on what they can do by their budget, and so they will cut out things that don't make sense. So they'll put people someplace else because it's easier to get to or easier to do. So I thought Lifetime did an absolute 
absolutely amazing job. You know, one of my friends, Lolita Files, used to always say that the movie is only supposed to taste like the book. It's only Mm. supposed to taste like the book. It's not supposed to be the book. It should just taste like the book because it's only 90 pages of a 300-page book. Wow. Well, they were excellent um, movies. I watched all of them. So, Victoria, now that you have all of this knowledge and you've been through this process, would you ever teach a workshop on book to film? Um, you know, that's a good question, Ella. Um, I've never thought about teaching a, a workshop for book to film because I think the most important part of going from book to film, well, I think there's two really important parts. One, I talked about it, but how do you get your books into the hands of the right people? And I still don't know how to do that. It's still, <laughs> it, and, and I, because it's just, being at the right place at the right time with the right people. Um, because I know Rashonda St. Billingsley had some books turned to movies, and it was the same thing. Somebody came to her, um, you know, and said, we want to turn your books into movies. So that's the question that people's always, people are always asking. Authors are saying, well, how do I get my books to lifetime, and, and I still don't even know how to do that. I don't. It's, they're not out, like, looking for people. I think there's, um, there's sometimes film um, festivals and things you can go to, and they may have panels there. Um, but I, I wouldn't know. I, I wouldn't know. Like, now I have a new book, The First Ladies. And we have an agent that goes around shopping our books, just like we have agents for our books shopping to publishers. We have film agents that shop it to the studios, but it's not very easy at all. And so the only thing I think I could teach in a workshop is how to be a good author (laughs) while you're getting your book made into movies so that they'll come back and do another one with you. Because if you behave like the author that's going to say, that's not how you should do it, I want you to do it this way, they will never work with you. And that's one of the things that I want authors to know when people are coming to you with deals and legitimate people, but when they're coming with you to deals, they don't need your book. I know everybody thinks that their book is the best book ever written, but they don't need your book. There are hundreds of thousands of books that are published each year, and they're going to go with the person who is easiest to work with, not the cheapest, who's the easiest. I can understand that. No one wants that trouble and that headache and and then fallout. I can understand that perfectly well. So with Brown Girls Books, have you ever considered shopping any of those books around, maybe for Lifetime? Yes. Well, we can't. Like I said, I don't know how to even get into Lifetime even being there. 
But with Brown Girls, we've had about five of our book options to become mm-hmm. movies. Um, and the authors were paid for that and everything. Um, the thing that happens with books being options is, it, I don't know the percentage, but I would bet you 90% of them never are made. 90%. Wow. Uh, so we have, had, we have had five or six books option, but the producers haven't made any of them into movies yet. Okay, so now let's move into your last 20 years. We know you for writing. I don't know why I never thought of your books as Christian fiction. And Christian fiction, and we talked about this so many times, but people know you for writing Christian fiction and the series with um, Victoria, I mean, um, Rashonda takes jealously the work that you all have done in writing your series and different things. That's where people know you as writing with of Jasmine and Rachel and that sort of thing. So how has your readers' response been for you writing historical fiction when they have been 20 years in Christian fiction? Yeah, so it's really interesting because, Ella, if I told you the numbers, uh, the numbers between the number of readers I have for for Rachel and Jasmine and the number of readers I have for my historical fiction, it is like 10,000, 100,000-fold. I mean... My numbers don't come close, don't come close. So if none of my readers from my old books read my historical fiction, I would never even notice. It is not even in the same galaxy, the number of books that I sell now. And so... um, it's not like the people who read Jasmine and Rachel are like, oh, my goodness, you know, I don't have anything to read. I don't know, because it's such a small amount of people. But from the people that I have gone out to, like I go to the National Book Club Conference and everything, the readers are really happy, because I think what happened to me happened to them. And what happened to me was like you just said, 20 years of writing the same book. And I felt like I wasn't growing. I wasn't doing anything new. Yes, I felt like my writing was getting better, but it was the same old book. And one of the things I found was I had people who would walk up to me and say, girl, I love your book. But then when I asked them what was the last book they read, it was 10 years ago because there was no longer any urgency to reading any of my new books because it kind of felt like the last book. There was nothing new that they were learning, nothing new they were getting. And I felt that as a writer. So what was great for me was to get into a new genre, start writing new things, start learning new things. And I think that's what happened to the readers. 
and they came rushing back as well. So going from writing in one genre, say, Christian fiction, and now you've written two New York Times best-selling historical fiction. Was that shift difficult for you as a writer since you had had a little writer's block with Stand Your Ground? Was it difficult changing genres and having to just be working on the movies in the background, too? Was that shift challenging? So now that was a that's a different question than the first one. The second one about working on the movies and the book at the same time was really hard. And I wasn't really working on the movies, but going up to Vancouver and they were long days on the set and not getting writing done. Um, but I still had to deliver wrath and, and pride in the middle of writing the historical fiction book. And so that was really difficult. But as far as moving from one genre to the next, what's so interesting is that, and you and I talked about it, when I first wrote my first novel, Temptation, um, it was my agent who told me it was a Christian fiction book. I didn't know it was Christian fiction. I was just writing. And that has been my approach for every single book I've written. Um, for me, God is going to show up because no matter what I do in my life, God is going to be in there. So this book, that I, the historical fiction book that I've written, if the characters know God, God is going to be in there. This last book was about Mary McLeod Bethune, and God is in there because that's who she was. So if I'm writing a book, it's going to be in there. But there's not very many of my books that you can say fit into one genre or one formula. And the best compliment I got was uh, from a professional reviewer. I think it was Booklist with the personal librarians. And as they were writing the, the review, they said that Marie Benedict, this, this project brought together two authors, Marie Benedict, who writes about versatile women, and then, and then they said, and then there's the incredibly versatile Victoria Christopher Murray. And that was like the greatest compliment I've ever received in my career. Because here was someone, um, wasn't a black reviewer, but had followed me or had knew enough about my book to know that God has given me a gift where I feel like I can write anything. I really do. Now, I can't write horror because I would have no interest in it or sci-fi because I personally, not that they're not good, I don't have any interest in it. But that was one of the best compliments that I've ever received that someone was saying, Victoria can write anything. And that's kind of how I feel. I didn't feel like this was a big change or anything. I kind of felt like this is just what I do. It's just still the same kind of writing to me. 
so what's going to happen with Jasmine and Rachel and that whole series and you and Rashonda writing as partners? Because that's what y'all are known for. When I know I've been at least ten events and you both took the stage and um, at the same time with both keynotes. So what happens to those lines of books and writing for Simon on that level? May those characters rest in peace. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) So we done with Jasmine and Rachel. I'm done. I mean, I will never say never, but, you know, this is my career. Because, you know, I've had to answer this question a lot um, recently, obviously, because what I'm writing now is so different. And I've had to answer this question a lot, and I tell people, just like in their careers, how they want to grow, and, you know, they get promotions, they go into new departments and everything, um, that's what we want to do. Both of us want to do that as well. And then it is a career. This is a career. And the books with Jasmine and Rachel, those books are considered, to publishers, those books are considered niche books. Some people pronounce it niche or niche, but that means that there's a small group of readers who are going to read them. And so I spent 20 years writing for a very, very small market. And at some point, the publishers are going to get tired with the low sales. Um, And then even you as a writer, you're going to want to grow to get bigger sales. Um, A book like Rachel and Jasmine, whether or not you agree with this, but a book like Rachel and Jasmine would never be on Good Morning America, never. Mm -hmm. But a book like The Personal Librarian would. And so it's so, just me growing in my career. Okay, so, Victoria, you can fall off this conversation or not answer, but I got to go here. <laughs> okay. I follow you for politics. I don't even look at the news. I don't look at TV. When I want to know what's going on in the world, I come straight over to your page to see what's going on with politics and the Republicans. So when you got into writing The Personal Librarian and The First Ladies, all of this hubbub had to be going on around our past president. And for those who don't know, Marie Benedict is a white lady. Now, how Mm -hmm. much did that play into your working relationship and going into these books? Because that had to be challenging with some of your opinions on politics and working with someone that was white writing a book about white women and black women and people passing. Now, how did that all work out? How did how was that relationship built? And I know that had to be the elephant in the room at some point. Well, not the elephant because we talked about it every day because we were writing <laughs> we write books about race, and so we talk mm. about books about race. But you know, the thing is, is that I'm writing with a white woman who's in publishing and. That you don't want to make um, generalizations, but publishing is very, very, very liberal. They're, they're more liberal than you and me sometimes. They're very liberal. So um, they're like on the 
far left. They're the defund the police people. And I'm not a defund the mm-hmm. police person. So it was easy because we're on the same wavelength, but it was also informative because Marie will tell anyone who will listen that she has learned so much from me about race. But interestingly enough, I've learned a lot about race from her too. So it wasn't an elephant in a room. We talk about race every single day, even when we are not writing. Right now, I'm writing my own solo book. She's writing her solo book. And then this morning, when um, the, the person who had escaped from prison was caught and he was caught alive and not a shot fired, Marie and I were on the phone talking about that. Like, can you believe he was caught? If he had been black, he would have been dead. Exactly. And so, and so I'm working with not only her, but my agent, my publisher, um, everyone who they follow me for politics, which is kind of funny. And I'm working with a group of people who are of like mind. So there were no Trump supporters there. So with your books, sales tripling and having a much larger audience. I've seen your event pictures, and there's very few black people in those audiences. It may be a few, but it ain't overwhelming. So if your numbers are tripling like that, that means you've come into a lot of white readers. For those numbers to do that, there's a lot of white readers. Do you feel welcome? Very welcome. Very welcome. And one of the things they can't figure out, one of the things that people constantly ask me, and, you know, I just did the calculation. You, you were saying my numbers have tripled. I just did the calculation while I was talking to you. They have not tripled three times. My numbers are 35 times greater than what I used to sell. Wow. 35 times greater. Isn't that crazy? Wow. 35 times. Not tripling. But, yes, I feel very welcome. Again, the kinds of people who would read these kinds of books are not the people that we see on – they're not the MAGA people. In fact, the biggest crowd I ever had, and this was me by myself. They knew Marie was not coming. I was in Sarasota, Florida. This was recently. And in the morning, I had two events that day. In the morning, I was, um, it was about 10.30, and I was like, who's going to come out to an event at 10.30 in the morning? Well, it was older retired people, and we had 350 people there. And then at night, at the nighttime crowd, there was almost 500. It was like 495. And they came to see me. It was, they didn't come to, I mean, Marie wasn't on the agenda for that. It was just me. And I was in Florida. And I'll never forget because I have, we have a lot of men who come to our events too. And the first question was a white man stood up and said, so what do we have to do down here to make sure your books don't get banned? What kind of oh, fight wow. do you have to put up? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> he was like, because we're ready to fight. And everybody cheered. And I was like, y'all are going to get me kicked out of Florida. I need to go catch <laughs> my, my plane. So I'm very, very welcome. But it's a different kind of group who would read those books. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And when they're coming so to the events, when they're coming to the events, because more than half the time, I'm doing them separately from um, Marie, but just so we could spread out. And so they know that it's just me going to be there. They know it's just me. And they still, as you can see, show up. And that's good. And, I mean, that could be... That could be a sign. That could be a teachable moment. That could be inspiration mm-hmm. for so many other authors because now we see that an author can cross over and still grow and go over and become a New York Times bestseller. When I first came into this industry, it was a crazy place. Uh, black people wanted their own. They didn't want to be mixed mm-hmm. in with white books. We wanted their own section for African-American books, period. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that was the Booth heyday. So as we move forward, maybe 10 years later, I'm getting confused because now we want to be back in with the mainstream. We want to be seen <laughs> with the other well, books. See, I, now, see, this is in, that's interesting. The reason I want to with this book, is because the, this book is not for black people. This book is for all people. Mm-hmm. Jasmine and Rachel, they were for black people. Do you know what I mean? They were mm-hmm. for black, black readers. So it's not that um, you're getting confused. We've lost a lot in, since you came into the, this industry. You came in when I came in. And at that time, we had borders. And, you know, they had that whole big, wonderful um, black section. There was a, that, remember that Borders out in Capitol? Yes, in Largo. Oh, mm-hmm. my. That, yeah, Largo. And it was wonderful. So it's not that we don't want that. It is that I think what, what has happened, because I don't think we ever didn't want to be on the New York Pop. I never wanted to um, not have white readers. I just didn't know what to write to get a crossover market, to, uh-uh. to have all readers. And so I just wrote then what I knew, I knew. But now black readers have said to me they're so appreciative because Rachel and Jasmine – had their heyday, but now black readers are saying, we want to learn something too. We want to be entertained, but we want bigger books too. Well, we have it because The Personal Librarian was an awesome, incredible book. So now let's go into each of these books and possibly have you to read from these books and with the personal librarian, I own both of the books. I haven't had the chance to read the first ladies, but when I take my November off, I, I don't work at all in November, I, that'll be the first book I read. But I read the personal librarian. I have it in um, two different forms. So Belle 
Bell DeCosta Green Bell became a fixture in New York society, and she was a powerful person in the arts and the book world. So take us inside of the personal librarian. So the personal librarian, oh, my gosh, I just love this book because I didn't even know that these kinds of stories existed. But Velda Costa Green is one of those hidden figures, this woman who was so important, and she's been lost inside the folds of history. Um, as, as we said, her name is Velda Costa Green, and she was the daughter of, from two very important sides of her family. First of all, her father was Richard T. Greener, and it, it kills me that all of us don't know his name. Richard T. Greener was the first black man to graduate from Harvard University. But beyond that, he was an activist. He was fighting for civil rights. He was more famous than Frederick Douglass during his day an orator just like him, and he was just fighting for civil rights and equality for black people. He was the grandson of a slave. And from her mother's side of the family, the fleet side of the family, they lived in Washington, D.C., and they were from generations and generations of free blacks, and everyone in their family was educated. The women were all educated, the college educated, I should say. The men were all college, college educated. The men became engineers. The women became teachers. Um, they were considered, they would be part of what W.E.B. Du Bois called the talented tech. And um, her mother was, was in the civil rights movement with her father, but then when the Civil Rights Act of 1875 was overturned by the Supreme Court, her father thought they should continue fighting, and her mother thought they had lost the war. And so her mother said, if we have lost the war, they're never going to give black people any kind of equality. Look at the color of our skin. We're going to need to live as white people. And Belle was a teenager when this happened, so it was her mother making this decision for her. And her father said no, he wasn't going to do that. He was fighting for civil rights. So the family split up at that time, and they started, well, the father left, but the mother raised the children as white. And that's how Belle the Green became the personal librarian for J.P. Morgan. Now, the librarian has a different connotation um, today. She was the curator. J.P. Morgan has one of the uh, most valuable collections of rare books and manuscripts and art in the world. He has, in that library today, they have three Gutenberg Bibles, and those were the very first ever printed Bibles ever printed. He has three of them, or the library, has three of them that she acquired for him. And each one of them today are worth a half billion dollars. Oh, wow. And so she became, yeah, she became this person 
who was helping him build his collection. And because of that, she was like the toast of the town. She was collecting art during a time when women had nothing to do with that. They were not, you know, they didn't have much to do with anything. Women couldn't even vote when Belle was doing this. And she was helping J.P. Morgan to leave behind this legacy. But no, she was passing. And no one knew that she was black until she passed away. Until decades after she passed away. No one knew she was black. And so I, you think about, you look at what J.P. Morgan has and why his name remains and it was because of a black woman. It's an incredible story. The personal librarian is a story about race and class and one woman's struggle to live authentically. But the book also raises questions, and I feel y'all did a good job of that. It raises questions that are still relevant today. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. a historical fiction, but in a contemporary way, it's some of these things are still just as relevant. So to just sum up talking about the personal librarian, what are two of the things you want this book to do? You want readers to take away, mm. or what do you want this book to do? Oh, that's a good question. I can think of one big thing. Um, I'll try to think of something else. But one big thing was one of the things I learned Ella, as I was writing this book is I really learned and why people were passing and how they did it. Before this time, you know, I was a little offended. I wasn't as as much as a lot of black people. Like a lot of black people hate people who pass, hate them. And I, I didn't feel that strongly, but I used to think that passing was just because you wanted to be white. And one of the things I learned in this book when I was studying her mother and why her mother did this, it had nothing to do with her wanting to be white. It had to do with her wanting to be equal. She just wanted to be equal, and that's why they were passing. And so I want especially black readers, as they read this book, excuse me, to get a new understanding of passing. Because it will, it will teach us some things. It's not that people wanted to be white. They wanted to be equal, and that's not very much different than what we do today. We move to um, different neighborhoods. We put our kids in special schools. We have all of these clubs, Jack and Jill, and everything. We belong to these different organizations all to give our children better advantages. That's all we're trying to do, and that's all a lot of people who were passing at the time, that's all they were trying to do. So I know that I want people to have a better understanding of why people were passing. They weren't trying to be white. And then I guess the second thing is that my co-author and I have become very, very close friends. Like, she's one of my best friends, and she would say that she doesn't talk to anybody as much as she talks to me. Um, so she would say the same way. 
And I, and I think it's very fascinating that a black woman and a white woman became friends over discussions about race. And not all of the discussions were easy. I can't think of any of the discussions that were easy. But when you can talk openly and honestly about that, then you really have a good friendship because you can talk about anything from there. And it just I just think that maybe not with that book, maybe more with the First Lady, but just watching Marie and I together, people can get to see how these kinds of friendships, maybe we could change the world. Maybe we could stop all this polarization. Some of it will never go away because, like, when you asked the question earlier today about the elephant in the room, Ella, to be honest, if somebody supported Trump, I don't think I could sit next to them and write a book because Mm -hmm. they don't share my values. They don't share my values. but if we have a greater understanding of the, who I think is the majority of us, those people in the middle, I think maybe we could start changing some things in this country. So that's a good segue into your book, The First Lady, because the two women in The First Lady were two different women, two different races, but they were both passionate and committed women to one cause, and they became best friends, well, not best friends, but good friends, much like you and Marie. So take us into The First Lady, and it's about uh, uh Former President Eleanor Roosevelt. Roosevelt. Yeah. It's his yeah. wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Mary Bethune McLeod. So, I mean, Mary McLeod Bethune. So, take us mm-hmm. into the First Lady. So, and they really were best friends. They were so close. This is the story of two women who, during a time of segregation and Jim Crow, not only found a way to forged friendship, a great friendship, but they used that friendship for the greater good. And they used that friendship to force, and when I say force, force, FDR to do some things, but there are some things that FDR gets credit for, and it was really Mary and Eleanor who pushed him into doing it. And so... They meet um, in 1927 at a luncheon that Franklin's mother, F.E.R., I should say, um, his mother invited Mary to a luncheon for women um, who run large organizations, women's organizations. And she wanted all of these women to come together in New York to talk about their common goals and the things that they all wanted to do together. And so when Mary walked into the luncheon, you know, she was fine, but the other women, and there were about almost 20 of them, would not sit down and eat with her. They told the Roosevelt, we don't sit down and eat with, and you can imagine the word they used. And that's really how Mary and Eleanor met. That's true. And that set the stage for their friendship, totally set the stage for their friendship 
because from that point forward, Mary was very happy with how Eleanor handled it, and Eleanor was in awe of Mary. And Mary almost became like Eleanor Roosevelt's mentor, um, helping her forge this new life. She, she and FDR did not have any kind of marital relationship when he was in the White House. A lot of people don't know that. They had totally broken up. The only reason she stayed with him after she found out that he cheated on her was because her mother-in-law said that one day she wanted FDR to be president and a divorced man could never become president. So she Mm -hmm. talked her into staying. She talked her into staying, but they were never husband and wife. And she was trying to find her place in the world, even as she put up this front of her being with Franklin, um, and she really ended up walking in a lot of Mary's footsteps. And one of the things, uh, you know, not to give away um, too much in the book, but one of the things that they did that everybody needs to understand would have never happened without Mary and Eleanor was they forced FDR, when I say forced, they really forced him to sign an executive order. He had to do this through an executive order. He couldn't even get Congress to go along with him with this. But he had to sign an executive order to desegregate the military because we all know the military was segregated as a military self. And so he desegregated the military, and that was the only thing in this country that was desegregated. Our schools were still segregated, um, where we lived. We still couldn't go into different restaurants. Everything was still segregated. But they used the blueprint from what FDR did with the military to roll out desegregation in this country. And so we stand on civil rights that Mary and Eleanor put together. We stand on the foundation of that. That was the foundation. That is amazing. I did not know that, and I can't wait to read The First Ladies. That's the book with Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. And the first book we talked about was The Personal Librarian. Now, I'm going to be off all of November, and I would that's the first book I'll be reading. And now, after talking to you, I can't wait to read that book. And I've seen that a lot of book clubs and reading organizations have read that book, too. It is a top a top yeah, uh, we, rated yeah, book. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was an inst- still an instant New York Times bestseller. But, you know, this is the thing that I think people like about this book. While we touched on race in The Personal Librarian, in First Lady, we go all the way there. Because there's no way that two women could become friends during Jim Crow, during segregation, and not, not only have to talk about race with each other, but have it hit them in the face. Ella, they couldn't even find restaurants in Washington, D.C. to go to to eat together because black people weren't allowed in there, even with Eleanor being the first lady. And you will see some of the things they did. And then I remember the publisher of Random House, who's our publisher, 
when he read the book, he said what he loved best about it were the mistakes they made with each other. Because we didn't want to write a book where everything was lovey-dovey all the time. There's no way for a black person to always understand a white person, and there's no way for a white person to always understand a black person. So when they mess up, they tell each other. Like in the first part, Mary's like, I'm done with you, you know, at one point. And then, and then later on, uh, Mary says something, and Eleanor says, you need to stop it. You just need to stop it. Sometimes white people got to be in here with you too. And so I just love those kinds of conversations because I think not only is it real, but it gives people a blueprint on how you can really have an honest relationship. And, you know, Marie and I, we, didn't get, we never get into arguments. We got into a debate because at one point um, Eleanor says something to Mary and, and Marie said to me, I don't think Eleanor should be lecturing Mary on things like this. And I was like, yeah, she can if they're really friends. And we're keeping that part. And so it was fun to have um, both of our views writing this book on friendship, on race, and we go there. We go there with the language. We go there with we are honest and authentic with this book. Well, Victoria, I'm going to tell you, I applaud you, and you're really making me want to read this book because I couldn't have been you. I couldn't have been that person probably writing with a white person considering all the stuff that has happened in the last two years with uh, police killing black people in the street and Trump and all of this stuff. My mouth and my attitude and everything would have made that so hard. I applaud you for being able to handle it and and, and gain this friendship and put out this magnificent book, because I'm here to tell you, Ella would have been challenged to the core. You know, I'm not sure, though, because Ella, it, it depends on who the white person is. So if the white person is standing next to you and wants to fight as hard as you want to fight, and they want to, because sometimes I have to say to Marie, would you stop it? Because if she sees somebody do a flight to me, she's ready to fight. I'm like, I'm not taking my advance to do bail money for you. Let's just walk <laughs> away. Um, and so, I mean, it depends on the person. You could have done it with her because the only difference between me and Marie is the color of our skin. We have the same values. We in fact, she's much more liberal than I am. And so um, I remember when the Central Park, we were working on edits for the personal librarians. And remember when that Central Park incident happened when yes. that white woman saw the black bird? And I'm telling you, it's a good thing it was COVID because Marie was going to get in her car and go find the lady. I said, first of all, you live in Pittsburgh. <laughs> and by the time you get there, she will be gone. And second of all, if you find her, I'm not into bail money. <laughs> and so it just depends on the person, Ella. I think you would have had, because let me tell you something. It was, it's, the word is not comforting, um, but I can't think of another one. It was comforting to have a white person that I could talk to honestly during that time. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't just 
hearing just my voice from my friends returning and saying the same thing. It was comforting to have a white person who understood. It was comforting to have a white person who wanted to know more and was asking other questions. It was comforting to know that there are real allies out there. Eleanor Roosevelt was a really, to me, I always like to call it a first ally, but that doesn't mean that they won't make mistakes. And it also doesn't mean that we often think about race in terms of white people need to learn about race. Black people can learn some things about race, too, because I've learned some major things about race that I never considered before. I used to think, that white people who said that racism didn't exist anymore were being willfully ignorant. I used to say, how in the world can you say racism doesn't exist? And then from talking with, with Marie, and she doesn't say that, but talking with her about people that she knows who says that, this is what I've learned. Racism happens to us every day. Every day, but it's personal. And what I mean by it being personal is I have a friend who can't let her son, I wrote about it on, on social media today, she can't let her son jog in his own neighborhood where he grew up because he's black. That's racism for us. I have another friend who lives up in another predominantly white neighborhood in Portland, Oregon, and her son was standing on his porch, smoking a cigarette on his porch, and the police drive by and say, what are you doing there? Is that your house? They would never do that to a white person. That's racism. We see that every day. Racism is if I get on a flight and a flight attendant sees me putting my bags up and she says to me, this is for first class only. And I say, I can read. Like, like a black person, and you only see black people in first, what is she talking about? And so we see those little bits of racism every day. White people don't see that. They don't see it. They're not standing on the porch next to somebody, because when they're on the porch next to a, a black man, nobody's going to stop them. Uh-huh. When they're in a the car, nobody's going to stop them. White people only see racism in big events that show up on TV. So they see Selma. And when they saw that happen in Selma, Alabama, on television, white people are like, oh, no, 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 we're not going with that. And that's when the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act got passed. The Voting Rights Act actually got passed during that. Then the George Floyd happened. And then that's when they hit the streets. And so they have to see big things on TV. They don't see the little microaggressions. And so when, when black people, and I'm one of the guilty ones until I started working on these projects, saying I'm tired of explaining it to white people, you, we can't get tired because there's no way for them to see it. You, they don't see the policeman stopping a guy on the porch. They don't see a mother being scared to let her son jog in his own neighborhood. They don't see us being followed in stores. I remember telling a white man 
about what a woman, about what the flight attendant said to me, um, saying that this is not, this is only for first class. And I, he was dumbfounded. And he said, this is 2021, because that's when it happened. And I was like, yeah. And he kept going back to it because he couldn't believe it. But for me, it wasn't that big a deal because they're going to do something different tomorrow. Exactly. And Mm -hmm. so I've learned a lot about racism and how a, a white person may not see it. And, the, and just because they don't see it, that doesn't make them a racist. And we have to figure out how can we get them to see it? Because there's no way for them to see the personal flight. There's no way. So that's one of the every things day that for us. That's, it's common for and us. It's every day. It's every day. And what's really bad, and Marie taught me about this, she said it's ridiculous that black people don't even have the privilege to get angry at the flight. Because we have so many flights coming at us, we'd be angry all the time. And, and that is so, uh, so true. And that came from a white person. And she it's said true. That she thinks that that's half. She said that she thinks that's half of the problem with our illnesses. And you're going to see that in the first lady because, and we were talking about it while doing this book. All of the slights and things that Mary had to go through, and then she ended up being sick. And um, something happens in the book that I want to tell you about. And the, and Marie was like, "Why wasn't Mary more upset about it?" I said, "Because it was just something that happened to her on a Tuesday." That's just the way we live. That's just, we have to live yeah. with that. And she, said, and she said, and that's why Mary is sick, and that's why black people have more diseases, because you don't have the privilege of being angry when you, you deserve and should be angry. Now, I, I like, hadn't wow. thought about oh, that, true. but now, look, I'm writing that down, Victoria, because that's about to go in my magazine. That's about to become a whole yeah. article. <laughs> a whole article. You, and so, if you, Victoria. When you to, when you write oh, it, ahead. just call me and interview me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's going to be an article. So, Victoria, are you prepared to read from either one of the books? I, I am not picky, whichever one you choose. Well, I'll read from the First Ladies, just the beginning, just a little bit of the beginning. The only challenge with reading is that you're only going to get Mary's point of view on this little part that I'm going to read because um, – we did one chapter Mary, one chapter Eleanor, one chapter Mary, one chapter Eleanor. So this is how the book opens up, and I'll just read it um, very quickly. But um, this is Mary's chapter, and it's New York, New York, October 14, 1927. Nearly 50 blocks were past my tap window as I ride through the upper reaches of Manhattan from the Hotel Olga in Harlem. Traveling toward the Upper East Side, I feel as though somewhere I've crossed an invisible line. The shades of complexion fade from color to white. Not that it matters to me. I have never been hindered by the views and prejudices of others, not even the Ku Klux Klan. My cab stops in front of a limestone townhouse amidst the expanse of brick facades on East, East 65th 
Fifth Street. I exit the cab, and then I pause before I mount a few steps to the front door. The number 47 is on the left, while 49 is on the opposite side. Yet there is only a single door. Odd, I think, and a bit confusing to have one door for two residences. I certainly hope that Mrs. Roosevelt gets along with her neighbors. The door is opened by a young woman wearing a white-collared black uniform. And for a moment, she just stands still, her eyebrows raised and her blue eyes wide with astonishment at the sight of me. I am Mrs. Mary McLeod Bethune, and I'm here for the luncheon, I say. She recovers quickly, oh, yes, ma'am, as she gestures for me to enter. Her face becomes, once again, the expressionless servant's mask. Chatter and laughter float in from down the hall. Ma'am, she asks, reaching for my coat. I shrug out of my black fur collar wrap and put my hat or untap my hat to make sure it hasn't tilted. The young woman leads me down the hallway darkened by mahogany panels. And as we approach the sound of voices, I listen to the medley of tones, searching for the accents and the intonations that will give me some clue as to who these women are. When I step into the drawing room, the gleaming chandeliers and the velvet burgundy drapes framing the large window and the chintz sofa and a crackling fire offer a much warmer welcome than the women inside. I'm unfazed, though. I move to the walls covered with bookcases, glorious leather-bound volumes line the shelves, how much my curious students at Bethune-Cookman College would enjoy and appreciate a library like this. If I didn't know this was a luncheon for women of national clubs and organizations, I think I'd step into a fashion show. Each woman here wears a different variation of the latest style. There are skirts and sweater sets and drop waist dresses, and of course, all are wearing silk stockings. It's quite the contrast with my ankle-length navy dress trimmed in velvet. But I peruse the bookshelves, noticing that the conversation dips to a whisper whenever I skirt close to a group. And as I draw near women that I recognize from my position as the National Association of Colored Women's Club's president, I smile and nod, but I only occasionally receive a nod in return. Most Often, my acknowledgments are met with steel-cold glances. It's so funny how some women who talk with me about the advancement of women in a formal meeting space that's open to white and Negroes pretend not to even see me in this social setting. But instead of allowing this to smart, I read the titles as I survey the book as a biography here and a novel there and a historical study in between catches my attention. Ah, Dr. Bethune, what a pleasure. My smile widens as the officious-looking Mrs. Sarah Delano Roosevelt approaches, surprisingly light on her feet for someone in her 70-something years. It is good to see you again, Mrs. Roosevelt, and you as well, Dr. Bethune. I hesitate, and then I say, I hope you'll pardon me for clarifying. Mrs. Roosevelt's expression hardens. She's not used to being correct, corrected. I prefer to be called Mrs. Bethune, 
Although I am grateful for the recognition, my doctorate degree is an honorary one, and I prefer that the honorific be reserved for the men and women who work hard to earn their doctorate. As you wish, Mrs. Roosevelt's voice softens, but please tell me, I understand that you just returned from Europe. How was your trip? It was a glorious eight weeks. Isn't Europe amazing? Sarah says it's so full of history. Then she leans closer to me and whispers, did I hear you had an audience with the Pope? Astonishment is in her tone, which matches the amazement that I felt standing before Pope Pius XI and receiving his blessing. As we talk about the Vatican, I wonder how news of my travel spread so fast and so wide. But of course I say nothing about this, and when Mrs. Roosevelt asks the purpose of my trip, I just tell her that I traveled to Europe with Dr. Wilberforce Wilson, who was the most noted healthcare expert and writer. He's a friend of mine, I say, from Chicago. He's been to Europe several times, but when he arranged the travel group, I knew it was time for me to get an understanding of life across the ocean. We chat about our experiences in Europe, especially the beautiful gardens. I love Kew Gardens in London in particular, Mrs. Roosevelt said. They have the largest botanical collection in the world, you know. I guess I say. I found it lovely as well, but I preferred the black roses in Switzerland. Black roses? Oh, my, she says with a bit of a surprise. I don't think I've ever seen such a rarity. A butler approaches and whispers to her. It seems I am needed for a, a very crucial matter for the luncheon. Will you excuse me, Dr. Bethune? I mean, Mrs. Bethune. I am left alone once again and find myself facing a cluster of three women. I can imagine their thoughts, wondering what on earth I have in common with the society matron, mother to the former assistant secretary of the Navy and failed vice presidential candidate, Franklin Roosevelt. He's been considered a promising politician on the rise until polio felled him six years ago. But I am not here because of him. The women I catch one another's gazes, every time I look at them, I smile. And when I'm rewarded with a cold shoulder once again, I just go back to roaming around the room. I do wonder, however, which of these women is Mrs. Roosevelt's daughter-in-law. Her name was on the invitation, and she is my host as well. I long to meet Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt, who has become an advocate for the underrepresented and one of the most prominent women in politics. I am definitely looking forward to meeting her. And so that's the first chapter. Wow, that's amazing. That's a lot in itself because a lot of us will have to learn about both women. There's a lot that's going to be told that we, even if black people doesn't know about Miss Mary, there are a lot of things to be learned in these books. So, Victoria, um, I didn't realize we had went over so much time because you were telling me so many things that I had no clue about <laughs> that I was taking notes. So I want to take a couple calls from the call-in yes. line, but then I also want, before we end the show, to find out what's next with you. So oh, callers, yes, I want to tell you that. So let's take some calls. Let's take some calls. 
Okay, so the I'm gonna call out the first six numbers in your phone number. I'll never call the whole number out online, and you can speak directly to Victoria. So I'm going to jump right in it because I didn't realize we had gone over. So call her from 713. Call her from 713-822. Your line is open, and you can speak directly to Victoria. Hello, caller from 713 Hello. Do you want to speak to Victoria or are you just listening? You could say just listening. Okay. So I'm going to go to the <laughs> next caller. Wait a minute. I think they might have. So, caller, did you want to speak? Okay. Just listening. Okay. So next caller is from 847. Caller from 847-269. Welcome to Band Radio. You can speak directly to Victoria. Hi. How are you? I love reading all I'm your good. books, and I haven't read the books yet, but I am interested in listening to what you had said. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thank you for listening in. You're welcome. Thank okay. you for the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Okay. So callers, um, next up we have a caller from 202. Caller from 202. Your line is open. You can speak directly to Victoria. 202-977. You can speak directly to Victoria. Okay, so they're just listening. listening. Yes, I'm going to try one more, and then we're going to go into what's next for you. Caller from 301, caller from 301-422, your line is open. Caller, your line is open. You can speak to Victoria. Are you just listening? Okay. So, Victoria, uh, people are just listening, and I understand that because most people's households are lively at this time of evening. So, Victoria, what's next for you? Are you writing new books? Are you still touring? What's next for you? Oh, my goodness, Ella. I am so excited about what's next for me. I am on a deadline, or I'm past my deadline. My deadline was August 1st, but I'm writing my first solo historical fiction book and it's called the muse of harlem and it's about the harlem renaissance and if you have i'm writing about a woman that if you have a favorite harlem renaissance writer she discovered that person she discovered them all she discovered langston Hughes. she discovered nella larson she discovered zora neale hurston she discovered every she was the first one to publish every single one of them, County Cullen, everyone. And her name is Jessie Redmond Fawcett. And Langston Hughes calls her the midwife of the Harlem Renaissance. He said that he, she helped him birth all of his books, I mean, all of his poems. Um, she met him. She met Langston when he was nine. He had just graduated from high school. Uh, and then the scene I'm writing right now is about Herman Langston because he's dropping out of Columbia University. 
So I'm so excited because this is my first solo project. Um, and so it's a little scary, um, but really exciting at the same time. And I love this woman because, again, this is someone who's been lost in history. I think there's a lot of reasons she's been lost, though, because not only was she a black woman, but she worked at the Crisis Magazine, which is the only – she was a literary editor, she was the, which is the only place black people could get published um, during that time. And she was having this affair with W.E.B. Du Bois because he was married. And um, I just kind of think part of that got her wiped out of history. Um, but I'm very excited about writing about her. And she also was one of my sorrows. So she's a kind of a hidden delta and a hidden person in the literary field. And as a black female writer, I stand on her shoulders. Wow. I can't wait to read that. When will it be releasing? It won't be releasing until January 1925, so a year and a half, almost a year and a half now. Getting, I was supposed to turn it in, so I'm turning it in within the next few weeks, but I'm very excited about the Muse of Harlem. Will you be releasing anything in 2024? No, we'll just be our... Um, paperback version of the first lady but no 2024 will be a year for me to kind of gather it together and uh put together everything for uh 2025 and one thing that we may be doing um you know the personal librarian has been optioned to become a movie through al roker's entertainment company um and so yeah, so we may be doing a lot of work on that next year. So, Victoria, I did have a question that someone typed into the message, and I am just seeing it. They were asking, what was your thoughts on the writer's strike, and when a writer is not doesn't have a book coming out, what do they do in that free time? So, um my thoughts on the writer's strike is that it's very scary for us as creative people right now uh, because what these executives want to do, and I have a feeling it will be coming to publishing soon, is they want to just work with artificial intelligence and not pay people, even with the actors. They just want to take an image of the actor and pay them one time and say, we can use your likeness for the rest of your life. That's crazy. So I hate that they're out of work um, because they're not earning any money, but they're fighting for all of us creative types, so um, I'm supporting them. And then when a person is not writing, um, see, I'm always on deadline, so there's never a time when I'm not writing. But if a person is not writing because they don't have a new book, make sure that they're spending their time promoting their old book. I think one of the big mistakes that writers make is they promote their book for maybe the first six weeks, and then they think that's over. And it's, it's never over. Um, no. I can't tell you the number. It's never over. I can't tell you the number of people who still are going out and buying Stand Your Ground, and I wrote that book in 2015, or... Um, the people who will see the movie and will still go out and buy one of the Seven Deadly Sins. So you're always working, 
always promoting, getting your face and your names in front of people. Um, with so many virtual options now, there's no reason not to speak to book clubs, not to speak to libraries. Every library wants people to come in and they have virtual programs. Every book club does. Um, spend that time to do the marketing because people write a book and then they just let it go and then they wonder why the book's not selling. Um, even exactly. with me being with a random house, I work my butt off. I think you could tell Ella that. You could tell people that, Ella. Oh, my God. Yes. I still work 20, 25 years. I'm still, this is still a hustle. And uh, one thing I want to say to you, Victoria, in these last three minutes is this. I want to thank you for always, always supporting Ella D. Curry and Band Radio Show and Black Pearls Magazine. Not only have you purchased packages to help me pay my bills, you've also volunteered numerous times to come on my show. And I was telling someone today earlier that when I started this company, little few people knew me, my little radio show. Every time I have ever asked you to come on my program to do an event with me, you have shown up each and every time. Never asked me to pay, never asked me to pay for your transportation. You have even flown to Atlanta to my chocolate social and then flew right back out. You came just because I asked. I want to thank you because so many people don't feel that way about a little platform. A lot of the people who turned me down and shrugged me off don't even have contracts, aren't even in the business anymore. I wasn't good enough. But even at your level, being a veteran writer and having movies and best-selling books, you have always shown up. And that's the thing I love about you. When I go to book club events, I see you. When I go to big things like National Book Club Conference or Congressional Black Caucus, I see you. You have never turned us down. And that is the thing I love about you and want to thank you for so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. But LA goes both ways because you never had to invite me. You never had to invite me. You have been supporting me. You knew me before I knew you because I remember you coming up to me and introducing yourself. And so you have been supporting me for every single day of my career. How could I not do something for you? How? I, I wouldn't even know how. And and it's not that I ever felt I was doing it for you. It, it was an honor for you to invite me. So that's how I see it. And I love it. And I wish you much success. And I'm just looking forward to how much more <laughs> becomes of your career because it's moving and, and having 30 novels. It may even be more than 30 now. Uh, yeah. I could be a little behind. <laughs> So having over 30-plus novels, now Lifetime movies, two New York Times best-selling books back-to-back, I can't wait to see what's next. <laughs> when I see your critics saying producer, director of a movie, <laughs> the next Regina King. I know. <laughs> I know, I know. 
You know, it's so funny because I don't have any any interest in that even now. Um, I just, Ella, I love to write. And that's what you're going to see. You're going to see, you know, the, the thing I am, I love the First Ladies, as you can tell. Um, by the way, that was the first time I've ever read. So I hope I did okay. Uh, but, you did excellent. Um, I love I, I love the First Ladies, but Ella, I'm telling you, this book about the Harlem Renaissance, I'm telling you. So that's the next big thing for me. So I hope I will be back with you. I promise I will be back with you to talk about that before it comes out. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So I am going to do my 28 Days of Black History, uh, the first my first year on band radio, I did 28 straight days on the radio, all black history, and I haven't done it since. Mm. And I'm going to do it again this year, 28 straight days. So I hope that you and Marie will come back and we'll do oh, one day personal yes. library and one day the first ladies. I'm looking forward oh, to having you. Oh, that wonderful. So, Victoria, I know that I saw that you're on your way to L.A. for a big event. So I'm going to let you go, and I'm going to speak to the audience. But thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Ella. Thank you so much. And thank everybody for listening. Okay, okay. bye-bye. So uh, Black Authors Network, Friends, and Friends to Black Pearls magazine, one of the most important things that you can do for any author is to share their work, share their social media posts, share their radio interviews. Tell at least 10 people you know about each and every author that's on band radio show. Our Crown Holders Conversation take you behind the scenes of the literary world. I hope these stories encourage you to write your own books, tell your own stories. My name is Ella D. Curry. I own Black Pearls Magazine and Crown Holders Transmedia. We are on the air every Monday and Wednesday night, and I hope you will join us again to meet more sensational authors and find out more tantalizing tales. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.